Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On tonight's show, I have a very special guest. His name is Jason Horsley. I had a discussion with him on his podcast, which is located at, you can see a reference to it or a link to it at audiculture.com. That's his website. And his podcast is titled The Liminalist, the podcast between a really interesting podcast, very cool guest. I think I was, when I was interviewed, the guy who was before me was uh, the lead actor on Stephen King's uh, book about what was the name of that book? What was the name of that movie with the car? Christine, Christine, yeah, yeah, Keith so, Gordon, yeah, yeah. So Keith Gordon. So, but uh, Jason Horsley is from the UK. He's an excellent writer. I just finished reading his book, The Dark Oasis: A Self-Made Messiah Unveiled. That's the book we're going to be discussing today. He's also written other books: um, Homo Serpiens, Secret History of DNA from Eden to Armageddon, The Lucid View: Investigations in Occultism, Ufology. And Paranoid Awareness that was published in 2004. He has two books coming up. Uh, one is about UFO social engineering and the psychology of fra- fragmentation. That's called titled The Prisoner of Infinity. And another is The Vice of Kings, Occultism, Social Control, and Abuse Control. That'll also be out next year. So I look forward to reading those. But I just finished his book, Dark Oasis, yesterday. So we'll talk about that. Jason, welcome to the show. Thanks, William. Awesome. Uh, really enjoyed the book. Very interesting uh, analysis and insight into this character by the name of John DeRuiter, D-E-R-U-I-T-E-R. And he his kind of headquarters was in Edmonton in Canada. You know, Still oh, is. Still yeah. is, gotcha. And he, yeah. he called it the Oasis, thus the name of the title, Dark Oasis. But uh, Jason had has a very interesting tale to tell about his encounter his, when he first met John DeRuiter and everything that kind of up until today, very recently in 2017. And this book has been a book he's been working on for some time, seven years, it seems like, or maybe five mm-hmm. years, but he can talk more about that. Jason, uh, before we get into talking about John DeRuiter, tell a little bit about yourself if you can. Uh, that's always the di- most difficult question. Um, <laughs> I, I, uh, I always just think of the present right off. I work in a thrift store, run a thrift store in Canada, have a pretty regular life at present, married with a cat, pretty content, which I'd say for the first time in my life, I can say without doubting myself. Um, Prior to that, I mean, the life that's led me to this point is, as you know, I think, William, a pretty unusual one of spiritual seeking, um, gallivanting. I've, I've traveled the world from the age of 17 to about the age of 40 when I started finally to slow down and actually put some roots down. Um, I was always uh, looking for an answer. <laughs> now I'm thinking of The Matrix. I can't help it. I wrote a book about that too. Oh. Like, like a splinter in my brain, it felt, was always driving me to um, try and discover what was wrong essentially with myself or with with reality or both and um that led me on i would say some uh, uh down some dead ends let's say so i got into carlos castaneda and crowley and occultism you and i talked about last time we spoke and into shamanism in general and um a lot of psychedelic use I would have uh, got into a lot of sexual promiscuity if I'd been able to, but I, I was never very successful in that area. But basically, I, I, what, what is conventionally known as the left-hand path, I was, 
I was driven to kind of seek self-transformation through uh, through will, through appliance of will, and trying to uh, explore all of these different, um, not just occult, but philosophical and esoteric paths. And... Um, yeah, that, you, yeah. You wrote yeah. even in this book. You wrote you were in contact with Kenneth Grant, who yeah. actually sat at you know basically lived with Crowley right there at the end in Hastings. I, th- I found that pretty interesting that you were in conversation with him. Yeah, I know it is. It is interesting. I mean, uh, obviously it was exciting at the time, and I just thought, yay, this confirms my feeling that I'm somehow especially endowed, you know, and I'm able to make connections that confirm this feeling I had that my destiny was even at, there was a point in my life where I thought my destiny was, was in the book of the law. You know, it says one will come after and solve right. this riddle. And I thought that's me. And, you know, I really, I really, uh, heavily invested in that whole thing. So connecting with Kenneth Grant seemed like a confirmation of that. And, uh, right. I mean, now, H- Hubbard yeah. thought he was the one who come after too. So you weren't the only one who, uh, wished for that attainment that time. Well, no, that's right. There were obviously thousands right, of them. Exactly right. uh, and, and Hubbard would be much close, closer to actually... Well, you're you not know. that far off. If you were in contact with Kenneth Grant, you're for me, you're only about three degrees of separation from Crowley himself. Yeah. Well, that makes it pretty scary, doesn't it? Yeah, Especially yeah. if people do guilt by association conspiracy theory. Cause, you know, we, we won't because... apply that to you. We will not <laughs> apply that to you. Although I'd love to know what you guys wrote about what you... Oh, I put all the letters online. Oh, I didn't know that. I'll, I'll have to check I'll that. send you the link. I, I took scans from them and I shared them a couple of years ago. Awesome. Um, but anyway, just to finish my story and hopefully uh, kind of contextualize what we're talking about here with with Grant and all that. Um, in the last few years, uh, congruent with getting married and also the period described in Dark Oasis, I um, I guess you could say I came down to earth. I crash landed really. I'd crash landed before that, so it was it was after I crash landed from from too much uh, occultism and too many psychedelics that I met my wife and and John Derusha and also Dave Oshana as another spiritual teacher of a much very different caliber, um, and that that all of these this combined sort of uh, coming down to earth uh, led into my investigations into my own family history um which is what vice of kings is about or it's, it's partly about that and partly about crowley i have two parts of the book um and the discovery that uh my that somehow i'd been uh, indoctrinated or conditioned to identify with these occult narratives and with this with this path um and the uh that was inseparable from a kind of early trauma, even possibly relating to sexual abuse or almost certainly, but possibly relating to organized uh, rings of sexual abuse as are um, quite uh, well documented or quite uh, quite exposed now in Britain, right. not to the extent that anything's changed, I don't think, but uh, certainly what I was able to uncover by looking back over my own personal history and British history using Jimmy Savile as a kind of um, a microchipped eel, you know, follow that guy right, right. <laughs> see which holes he goes oh, into. and there's so many, it's uncountable, right? Yeah, yeah, and and how many times that led uh, to uh, tunnels, if you will, that my family also 
uh, moved down, and also Crowley. Like I, I you mentioned, the three degrees of separation from Crowley. Well, I, I found, I did find uh, quite a few, uh, exactly that, two or three degrees of separation between family members, mostly my brother and my grandfather, and, and Crowley. Obviously, he'd he'd died, you know, twenty years before I was born, but uh, my grandfather uh, had a very close, well, a close friend who lived in Hastings where Crowley died so, uh, and did talks there. So it's quite likely possible that my grandfather visited there and that he did know Crowley. I mean, you know, whatever Peter Lavender says, so what? But to me, it's it's definitely, it obviously it doesn't prove anything and it's not really significant in and of itself, but just as a, a sort of concrete indication of how uh, close my own family circle came to overlapping with with Crowley's and by extension those of occultism, uh, intelligence networks and organized child abuse, which I feel are more or less the same. The seems same like thing. it seems run in the same I mean it's especially here in the States with this whole Pizzagate, all those people are politicians, child abusers, uh, connections to intelligence, legal yeah. legal environment, you know, so but yeah. incidentally to the listener, uh talking about La bring up Lavenda, Jason put an excellent post recently on his Aut Culture website go check that out about lavenda lavenda talking on coast to coast under a different kind of using a different voice uh, really interesting stuff and you one of your first interviews on your podcast or the first two i think were with peter lavenda's if i remember correctly uh on the limbalist and also prior to that and, and stormy weather it was when i was under the cloak of aeolus Cephas. yeah gotcha cool so You've come quite a bit away, all the way from northern northern England to Vancouver, Canada, and at some point you were, I think it was in the south of England where you ran into John DeRuiter, is that correct? Uh well, let me think. Um no, because I first met him in London. Oh, I first heard about him uh through the woman that became my wife, because she knew him. Uh and and then I looked into him, and I, obviously I was curious. I had this massive dream encounter, or whatever we're going to call that, some sort of vision that convinced me that he was a powerful sorcerer of some kind. Uh, and um, as it turned out, he was coming to London right at a point I was just about to leave to go to Canada. I even had to change my flight, I think, to meet him. And I did that, and then I went and I met him in London. If you can say meet, you know, he was on stage. I, I had a, a dialogue with him as, as one of the, you know, the, the, the spiritual seekers there at his feet. And um, I was that impressed that I went back the next day with my, my sister and a close friend, Mark Lorne, because uh, I wanted them to, to see him. And that, that time I didn't speak to him, and I just uh, just sat and tuned into him and what was your first impression when you saw him face to face can you describe him or the impact he had upon you uh well my okay so if we rule out the dream because we can't really be uh-huh. sure how real that was um then the first physical encounter was uh it was a sort of slow first impression because my my very first impression was um, well, I noticed how slowly he moved. It's kind of robotic movements. I noticed uh, how much power he seemed to emanate on the stage, just in terms of his stillness. But I was definitely skeptical. Uh, hearing him talk to the, the person that went before me, 
he speaks in a very vague, very slow, very spaced out way and kind of simplistic, even simple minded, some of the phrases. And so I was having a lot of skeptical thoughts, which I suppressed because I figured, well, I'll just wait until he speaks to me and see how that is. And then the first thing he said to me was referred to the inner child and I had actually been exploring this concept of the inner child and trying to connect my own childhood. So it, it directly referenced something that I, you know, was heavy on my mind, you might say. And so it, you could say he hooked me at that point. Like I really, he really got my attention. I thought, okay, he's, he's definitely not just doing a one size fits all thing here. He's, he seems to have tuned into something deep in myself and he's responding to that. And my overall impression was that uh, the words that he spoke didn't matter that much, and that he was he was communicating energetically with my body, uh, body to body, and bypassing my intellect, which I thought was I th that seemed valid to me because I had come to believe that my intellect was kind of a a damaged tool and a shield that, that kind of buffered me from an experience with reality rather than a really valid way to to understand or apprehend reality. So I so basically that that helped persuade me that the guy was for real. And did you, was the environment that you were in, was he sitting there with the same glass of water, the flowers, mm -hmm. the chair, mm -hmm. and then everybody kind of faced him in maybe mm -hmm. a semicircle with the women sitting on their knees in front, maybe? Does that sound uh, right? It wasn't any semicircle. There wasn't any women on the floor. I think it was just chairs lined up in rows. Very standard. I mean, he's, he seems to be a tall, taller person, piercing blue eyes. When I first saw a picture of him, it reminded me of, I don't even know why, but it reminded me of like what people draw of like Nordic UFOs, like the, the memory of that. For some reason, he almost has that look. I think he's from Danish extraction, right? Like Dutch, his story, yeah. Dutch. Yeah, so, he's he, Dutch yeah. so he's Dutch in his family. He was a cobbler in Edmonton before he got started with all this. So trace what happened after your first meeting and how you became drawn into his place that he calls the Oasis in Edmonton and how you got drawn into him and, and that story. Mm -hmm. Okay. So as I say, I went back the next day and <clears throat> I was very, you know, right from the start, uh, another first impression I had was what, what was around John, the Oasis organization. I didn't like that. Um, for example, they, I asked if I'd be able to get a recording of my dialogue with John and they said, no, um, the, it, they were selling things and it just felt kind of very corporate not very corporate but too corporate for for somebody who who seemed to be you know claiming to be surrendered in an exclusively spiritual place the whole oasis thing around him felt somehow um suspect so um so that was part of my impression and uh, as well as that my impression of the people who came to see John was not not very positive. Uh, and on the second day, <clears throat> it was particularly acute because there were a bunch of questions, uh, people asking him really asinine questions or not really even asking, just talking and talking and obviously trying to hold his attention. And, you know, it just felt, the whole thing felt a bit nauseating to me. I mean, I've, I've always been very anti-New Age and gurus and all of that thing. I was always just... Um, inherently or uh, temperamentally opposed to that. So what I did on the second day was um, to, to, you know, to try and deal with 
with the asinine questions and, and my feelings of uh, distaste for all of that, I just tried to tune into John and I sat, I wasn't opposite him, but I was in the front row and I sat without moving, uh, just gazing at him for it must have been an hour or more and even not blinking because he doesn't blink. He doesn't move. He doesn't blink. You know, when he speaks, it takes him two minutes to even start to move his lips. It's a, a very strange thing. Yeah. Um, and that was kind and, of a common theme in your book is the silence, the spaces between words that uh, you defined his character, how he uses silence. Yes, and stillness. And stillness. I, I didn't think about it at the time, but I'd done acting class and, and one of those exercises in acting class is about status and how how you project status and and, and one of the ways is, is stillness like uh, if you move your head ar- around a lot when you talk that's that's low status that signals low status if you maintain stillness that's high status um so uh, there's there was something about john that i was receiving unconsciously and i wasn't analyzing intellectually but his whole way of appearing can't say being because they're not sure what's going on the inside was manifesting or projecting the idea of power and and creating the the corresponding reverence because people have feel reverence for power you know uh and um and so anyway so i i wanted to kind of uh tune into or align myself with John just try and really put all my attention on him so I didn't have to get distracted by all the everything going on around him and so I kept completely still and uh, as I say I hardly even blinked and at the end of that experience I felt very different in my body like I felt like all this power coursing through my body I also felt lighter than usual almost like I could float um, it, it just felt as though I'd entered into this different physical state just by tuning into him. And based on that, I, I, I decided, oh, well, this, this must be, I must be getting a taste of what it feels like to be John. Like he's in this, in this completely different state of consciousness. And um, that, that's what I want. Right. Yeah. So that I want to be like this guy. Right. So you, you know, he made an impression upon you, and that just to like this is a quote from your book. This is John DeRuder talking, just to give the audience an idea of how the language kind of comes out of out of him when he's talking. He says, "You can be what you know the truth of within, or as awareness, you can lie to knowledge and fool yourself. Either way, you will be paying a great price. Cost is constant. The cost will be to yourself, or it will be to your own core." depending on the way you choose. So I've listened to some of his audio and video, and he sounds a lot like that, this kind of uh, new age kind of self-help, self-awareness kind of talk. Mm-hmm. And uh, so after after you kind of were drawn into John DeRuder and the Oasis, and what was the name of his, it was the Center for... Uh, college... A college of Integrated Philosophy. College of Integrated Philosophy. So then, that, the kind of what were the next steps you take took to kind of get more involved in in the kind of uh, environment that he had? Um, well, I I moved to Canada after that because that's where my wife was. And this is like 2010, 29. Is that right? It, this was t- 2008. 2008. Okay. The end of 2008. So I had this dream encounter with John, and then I had the real life encounter, and that had pretty much sold me that this guy was for real. Um, 
the other impression I had that I took about in the book was that he was he was very yin like he was this very feminine presence and I wondered where the yang energy was you know where the ma masculine energy and I also saw that in archetypal terms of like he was obviously manifesting a kind of Christ-like presence this gentle compassionate wise you know god god-like presence um, so, but because I was into occultism, I identified much more with Lucifer as an archetype. I see, I saw them as two sides of the same archetype. Uh, so I, I wondered, you know, where's the Lucifer? Where's where's that Yang, sexual, masculine, Luciferian energy? You know, where, you know, is it hiding or is it? Does he not have it? Uh, and so that, in retrospect, that question. Uh, was the question that I ended up answering with Dark Oasis and that actually, you know, it's all coming to light. Where is that side? Well, it's behind the scenes where you would expect it to be. Right? Right. You know, it's, a, it's the hidden side of this guy. Um, anyway, that was sort and, of the and how, how did you yeah. Well, how did you discover that kind of what you describe as the yang energy or the yang element to his character? How did that unfold to yourself? Well, it was a long process. It was a long process, and it was... I mean, I didn't... I'm, I'm not sure if I could say if I've ever, if I've ever seen it directly, um, because he, he does work hard to conceal it, or he did. I mean, even at this point, he's still concealing it insofar as, although he's acknowledging having sex with his followers and having had sex secretly with his followers and married women and so on for decades, uh, he's not doing it on stage. He's, he's still not showing that particular side of his his personality or his character he's, he's acknowledging it and he's admitting to it but he's not he's still in this very gentle calm uh you know wise seemingly loving right but life. according to your yeah. book he promoted um abstinency and promoted you know mm -hmm. uh loyalty to your yourself so he's saying that publicly and behind the scenes he's not adhering to that at all is that correct that's right. I mean, that's that, that's the main thing. That's been the main theme throughout my investigations into this guy, is the discrepancy between what he preaches and what he practices. So he didn't actually preach celibacy, but he did preach um, a kind of abstinence. I mean, certainly he preached no sex before marriage. Certainly he preached monogamy, and even he even preached that married couples should. Uh, you know, abstain from sex for sustained periods of time and only have sex if it was a movement of being, you know, not, not be having sex just for emotional or physical satisfaction. So he definitely had a very high standard, which he was, right. I would say, imposing on his followers. Like an asceticism, maybe, you know, like, uh, you know, this kind of monkish detraction from the flesh, I guess. Yeah, but, I mean, on the other hand, he... I mean, one of the appeals he had for people early on, I think, because he, he started out, uh, you know, as a small kind of redneck guy in, in, in Edmonton, Alberta. He was a Christian, but that's not mutually exclusive with rednecks. So he, you could say he was a kind of redneck sort of guy, a trucker and an outdoor guy and real simple guy who liked Louis L'Amour Western novels. And, and, and he drank beer and he smoked cigarettes. And, and so... Initially, like part of his appeal was that he wasn't at all new age, and he wasn't at all aesthetic. Like he, he, he did all he did these kind of things that are considered unhealthy or impure within the, the usual spiritual mindset. But he was also Christian, so right. 
you could say that's similar to Christians. Like Christians are quite tend to be quite. Um, I don't know what you want, what word you could use. Not necessarily puritanical, but conventional about sex in terms of monogamy and stuff. But they smoke and they drink because right. that's considered all right, right? Right. So well, his his moral set was more Christian than spiritual or New Age. Right, and that's an interesting point because when I first came across Deruder, my first my first impression was this is a New Ager, you know, capital N, capital A Ager. And then when I read your book, it, like he started out as a Christian, as a Lutheran. And, you know, giving uh, uh, sermons that apparently he wasn't very good at. But it's surprising for me that he came out of, you know, fin you've mentioned Finney and somebody else, what some of these like Murray, uh, Murray, Andrew Murray. Andrew Murray, 19th century preachers. I like yeah. it. when he talks, I don't see any of that. I see that there's something of a Christian ethos in his sir, in his speak, in his talks. But I wouldn't say he's referencing Christianity. So he definitely made a move from an originally, an, you know, as a Christian I mean, that's what his his first wife, I mean, we can talk about his relationship with women, but that's what she said, is he moved from there to some other kind of new age position. Yeah, he, he's been, you could say he's been uh, reformatting his uh, methods and his teachings in order to maximize their appeal. So uh, at a certain point, he went from, because his first core group were Christian apostates, like they were Lutherans, and John tried to uh, uh, gain power within the church, the Bethlehem church that he was part of, and he ended up getting kicked out, and so various other members of that church went with him, and that became the original circle, and, and then John figured out that he could by the tradition of tithing, he didn't have to work anymore. He could just get his his um, apostles or disciples or whatever he thought of them as at that time to give him 10% of their earnings. And then he'd become, you know, he, he was the main preacher of this, this new splinter group. Right. Uh, and it was never, and it, it was never yeah. determined how he got kicked out of that original congregation, correct? No, it, it's pretty unclear, and even Joyce's first wife didn't know that he was kicked out until I went and talked to those people. She always believed his version, which was that he'd left. That's amazing. So he had kept her deceived for two decades, right? Well, if, if that's the case, if, if he was kicked out, and I think it is, and even if it isn't, he certainly deceived her for decades because we know it's now come out that he was having sex with one of her close friends, you know, way back in those days. All right, and so you've been in contact with his ex-wife, correct? Yeah, that was my first real source uh, when I started writing the book, like because she, she, she wanted to write a book of her own, and uh, so she was pleased to hear that somebody was writing a book, and she was very willing to talk to me. And yeah, without her, I wouldn't really have been able to um, find out very much about Darusha at all, because most people uh, close to him don't want to talk about him at all. There is a you know, blindly loyal to him and, and also afraid of, you know, uh, getting his disfavor or their, I would say, um, been so negatively impacted by him that they just don't want to think about him at all and or they're also afraid of repercussions. Gotcha. And maybe that's a good other thing to talk about as far as the audience is concerned is is the organization around DeRuiter, how he's built it up and what it currently is and how much he's worth, how much money he brings in, etc. 
Yeah, because that's what I mean. That's, <clears throat> as you know, you read the book. It's one of the questions that I kept uh, bumping up and in, bumping into was how much did this empire, which back in 2010 was was valued at 5.5 million, I don't know what the value of it is now. Um, this this spiritual empire that's oasis that that formed around John, how much is it was it the result of his conscious intention and planning and how much did it just sort of happen? And um that latter interpretation may seem naive to, to most people, but that's the general view of John among his followers. And it was my view, as I say, from the from the start when I saw right away I intuited that something was 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 wrong with the Oasis organization around him. I rationalized it right away by by telling myself, well, John, if he's really completely surrendered to truth, if he's a living embodiment of truth, as he claims, then um, he just goes along, you know, with everything that's happening. And, and if people want to build him up into this, and if they want to create this organization around him, and if they want to dress him in nice suits and because I'd heard that his wives dressed him and did his hair and everything. I had this idea of him like a baby, like he was just completely passive. He was just there emanating pure goodness while um, all the people around him sort of shaped the the empire and, and built the empire around him, and he just he didn't do anything about it because wow. he surrendered, right? Yeah. Uh, in fact, the truth is is that, uh, and I started to find out, found this out pretty quickly that behind the scenes John is is very far from a surrendered type like he had security cameras in his house he had rottweilers uh he's uh likes to kind of fiddle the books on accounting say allegedly there don't want to get sued um very very tight-fisted very vindictive about bad publicity like works very hard to stop any bad, bad publicity about him or make right. threats legal threats uh, uh controls any use of his image uh you know so very very controlling in right. fact right and uh, there, there's been yeah. another there was like a, a journalist who did an article about him i think in 2010 does that sound right in canada talking about him and he they deruder or his his attorneys tried to keep that from being published does that sound right uh, I don't know about the date, but certainly that I think there was a Brian Hutchinson was one That's specifically. Uh, that would have probably been earlier. I think most of the bad press was after he split with Joyce, gotcha. which and we have to remember because your your listeners won't know anything about any of this. So um, we yeah, we have to kind of hit the the main points, I suppose. And uh, the the main scandal around Darusha until recently was when he split with his wife which was a result of him uh, clandestinely taking on two of his followers as lovers, the Von Sass sisters. And he did this in such a way that uh, he, 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 well, he lied about it for a period of time to his wife. And then at a certain point when he gauged that she was ready for the truth, he, he told her. Uh, but in such a way that he made it seem that he hadn't been lying previously, that uh, well, he, it was a, a kind of constantly changing story, actually. But uh, one of his methods for covering up the deception was by saying that what had happened wasn't what it looked like on the surface, and that it looked like him cheating on his wife or, or committing adultery. In fact, it had been a movement of being on the deeper planes, and that sexual desire had nothing to do with it. So when people, when his wife asked him, 
you know, was he having sex with the sisters? He had said no because she was talking on this mundane level of just sexual lust and adultery, whereas what had happened was on this deeper level of a, a movement of spiritual being. Right. You know, I have to laugh now, but I actually bought that. You know, I bought that. A lot of people did. I mean, a lot of his followers did. Have you ever hear, heard of Joseph Smith's scam, how he would um, have sex with his followers' wives? What he did was he made this thing about a celestial marriage. So his followers would have, it, followers would have a terrestrial marriage, then he would celestially marry these women, so then he would have his way with them and then send them back to their husband. So he right. had kind of a new right. spiritual, you know, twist on these things that uh, people believed in. You know, they don't even know how many people Joseph Smith. It's probably the same with DeRuder. What you know in the public isn't the, the entirety of the story of how many people he's had, uh, how many of his followers he's had relations with. You know, it's unknown, right? Yeah, it's completely unknown. I don't think anyone knows except possibly his son and obviously John himself. I mean, he has three kids from his first wife. He had the two Von Sass sisters. And then there were other peoples. And then there was a tragic death. Um, this woman by the name of Anina. Uh, she yeah. disappeared in 2015. Was found naked at the bottom of a cliff or something like that. So In a forest, in yeah. Forest. She died of hypothermia. And it's, it was ruled a suicide or accident even the ruling isn't clear it was basically the case was closed unsolved but obviously it was ruled not foul play um but uh yeah she was she was a a follower of john for some years from uh a dutch i believe and um or maybe german sorry to get that right I mean, you uh, think i know after all this time i think she was uh, i think she was german of a german yeah, family german yeah, yeah. And um, she was very, uh, she wasn't very active with other men. And they found in her diary stories that she was having, you know, sexual relationships with their rooter. At least that's the way they interpreted the writings. Yes, that's right. And then again, John claimed that uh, Anina was just writing about visions. Right. And convenient, convenient explanation, right? Yes, I mean, it's <clears throat> that's essentially what uh, appears to be going on with John, and one of the things that makes it such an interesting and useful case study, I think, is is um, the use of spiritual language and spiritual principles even to rationalize and justify and conceal um, predatorial behaviors, really. Right. Well said, very well said. And there was something strange, too. Like, he called her family, or they talked right two days after she disappeared before her body was found and said something criminal was happening with her disappearance. But I don't know how he would know that or even state that. And the family, you know, I don't think is satisfied with the police decision, if I remember correctly. No, no, they're definitely not. And it, it does remain a mystery. It's true. Um, the whole thing does, really. I mean, I don't know how you felt after when you got to the end of the book, whether you felt like you know the mystery was solved because i i, I didn't i, I don't I, I really can't reach any conclusion uh about john derusha and oasis beside that people are being hurt yeah i mean you make that point over and over that there's so many people that have come into his orbit and left more pain than they were when they went in you know more damage more hurt yeah um, i think that that you and you've talked to many of the Former followers, current followers through Facebook, through email, stuff like that. Uh, even this yeah. year, even this year. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, to, to currently, I mean, it's still ongoing. 
obviously now the book's come out uh, this, there may be some fallout from that hopefully good but there could also be negative I mean I could end up receiving a letter from Deruta's lawyers uh, that's, that's a possibility um, other people I, I, other people have received letters there was a slap lawsuit if I remember you mentioned that and uh, you just you just published the book this month, right? November 11th, 2017. Yeah. So, yeah. Although you've been working on it for five, seven years or something like that. Seven years, yeah, which is unusual for me to work that long on a book. And part of it, as I write in the book, was just not feeling sure that it was a good idea to publish it because, as I say, of not being clear about what John was doing. I, could, I mean... The thing is, is that a, a big part of the reason that I uh, believed John and took on board his explanations and his interpretations and his spiritual, you know, instructions and all that was because a lot of them coincided with things I'd already come to believe, um, without going into the specifics. But he he definitely appealed to to certain a certain sort of ideological framework that I'd already adopted the combination of Crowley, Castaneda uh, New Age, you know, spirituality in general uh, um, and um, what was I going to say well, there? That, well, would you say that's the same with a lot of his followers that they're in that kind of maybe alternate New Age Crowley, Castaneda you know, sensibility and so coming along with Deruder was, you know, an easy step for them? Well, it's, I mean, one could do an interesting survey in terms of John's followers because there's a bunch of sannyasins, you know, ex-Osho followers that he, right. he, he, he got, I don't know what That's Rajneesh, Rajneesh, what was his name, Rajneesh? Bhagwan. Bhagwan Rajneesh. Rajneesh, now known as Osho. yeah. Uh, so, yeah, John went to India to, several times to, um, you know, recruit, let's say, uh, followers of, of Osho he goes to Israel regularly uh, he I mean he's, he's constantly uh, recruiting he's trying to build up his audience call travel and, so he's going to the states Canada Israel UK where else was he on his maybe France I don't remember oh um, definitely Do uh, Denmark right uh, Holland, Holland is one of his regular stops. Yeah. Moscow probably goes to Germany because there's a lot of Germans. He didn't used to be able to go to the U.S. Actually, he was he was uh, banned uh, as a cult leader. Interestingly, but he went last year, so somehow he's managed to lift that that uh, embargo, which is interesting. I'm not sure how he managed that. What um, What do you think is the? I mean, what What's interesting about the book is how many people want to move from all over the world to go to Edmonton to be by him. How many? How big do you think that the people living in that oasis is? How 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 many followers do you think he has nearby? It's always quoted as between three and four hundred, which obviously is you know <laughs> a pretty broad spectrum there. So you know it it, it can vacillate or whatever, um, oscillate is the word between that three and four hundred. I think it it was bigger. I think he, I mean after. Um, a lot of people did leave after Joyce. People have left as a result of Anina. Uh, and I'm sure people are leaving now as a result of the calling, but then he's constantly replenishing. And to get back to, because we didn't finish the, the, the earlier point about who, what kind of people follow John, um, there are, I have also, and these are probably the people that 
would contact me so I would become more aware of it. But there, there are people who are interested in the occult in the group too. Um, obviously Christians, ex-Christians, uh, New Agers, these sannyasins. There's quite a, a broad spectrum. I mean, he manages to appeal to a fairly broad spectrum of people. And my um, sense is, is that one probably wouldn't learn that much by looking at people's superficial beliefs so much as their their childhoods and their their family backgrounds and their early experiences of trauma i think that that's probably the the hidden dynamic yeah. uh, in any cult is so. that yeah. yeah people are attracted to a charismatic leader i put this on the back of the book even or i did maybe i, I shortened it but that uh, you know we look for the the leader or the mentor or the father or the mother figure whose teeth fit our wounds right and you mentioned that often yeah. like the father figure as john deruder as a father figure um, yeah. yeah it's interesting and i mean you've been in contact face to face talk to him you know i mean not in great detail but definitely you know uh to, you know i think that you were talking to him in edmonton i only as a supplicant, thing. though. Right. Like I, I've never had a real conversation with what I would consider a real, you know, an ordinary, personal, man-to-man conversation with John. I don't think anyone has. Interesting, and that was another thing: how distant he was from his followers. That was another kind of theme in your book: is who knows the real John? Even his first wife kind of, kind yeah. of asked that question: who is this person? You know? Yeah, um, I know. Yeah, and it's, it's isn't it interesting that that people, including myself for a time, can somehow rule out the testimony and the experience of somebody who is married to the guy as irrelevant, you know, as compared to the thralls who just sit at his feet and think he's God. Somehow their testimonies are considered real and in truth, whereas somebody who who feels that they were betrayed by him and and really saw what he's like just on an everyday basis, uh, living basis, that testimony is considered irrelevant. Interesting. You mentioned yeah. the calling earlier. Can you just tell the audience or the listeners what the calling was? Right. So the calling, I'm pretty sure that John was using the term the calling long before it took on the designation it has now. But currently the calling has become John John speak for he can have sex with as many of his followers as he wants in secret, uh, regardless of the effect that it has on them, if they melt down, if they feel suicidal, if it ruins their lives, that all of that is irrelevant because he is uh, responding to what he calls the calling, which is, well, you know, your guess is as good as mine, really. Well, I suppose mine's a bit better because I've read, you know, I've gone more deeply into it, so I know the the rationale behind it but essentially it's well it's what it sounds like he's being moved by god to do these things it's kind of the oldest excuse in the book right i mean and you you actually kind of attribute that he might even be involved in some kind of weird tantric energy occult behavior with this these sexual relationships with women right didn't you say that there was like maybe he's Involved in tantric stuff? Does that sound right? Well, he, he's denied tantric, um, but that's because John doesn't want to be reduced to anything, you know, profane. Even tantra would be considered profane because he considers himself, I would say, if he does believe his own hype, uh, to be the living incarnation of Christ, God, truth, all in one. Um, so, you know, he's a law unto himself. 
but in terms of whether um, what he's doing has an occult dimension, well, that's John's claim. Right. And it's he's saying it's changing these women's brains. Right. Uh, he's certainly saying that he's moving from the deepest part of being into the deepest part of their being. So that's certainly hidden. Um, it's certainly energetic. And it's also seems to be what his victims, if I can call them that, that they, that they wouldn't all identify as that by any means. There's presumably plenty of women who feel that, you know, they're consensual and that they're getting some benefit from it. But those ones aren't speaking to me. So right. uh, I've spoken to at least one who, who, who felt that she's she was traumatized by the encounter with him and that it led to a breakdown and suicidal uh, ideation um, and that he, she was completely shut out by him. He wouldn't even answer her emails afterwards. And she feels that he um, was mining her sexuality in a certain sense, that somehow he was uh, infiltrating her innermost space by imposing his sexuality on her, on her in order to um, mine it and then use it for his own ends. She even thinks that the way that he's able to manifest power and light and um, wisdom, whatever we're going to call it, on stage uh, is via this mining process that he mines people's essence and then he re- he recycles it into his own product. It sounds like it reminds me of this thing Hubbard used to do to women, you know, is like have sex with them, but they would be in total fear and terror. It would be a horrible experience for them. And, uh, you know, they remain cracked by it. And, you know, it's supposed to be some kind of old ritual thing. I don't know if DeRuiter mm-hmm. goes that deep, but he's used terms like alchemy, which, you know, is a very non-Christian term. Uh, he uses that in his ex- explanations for his people who are listening to him, whatever the alchemy of being or some stuff like that. So he definitely has elements of the secret knowledge. He also, like you talked about there being a secret core group in there. He's, I mean, he made early statements that he was one of the two witnesses in the book of revelation, which is a very bold statement that a lot of Christians would scoff at. But, um, Mm -hmm. yeah, because there's a tie in with those two in Jerusalem. If I remember correctly, if I remember my eschatology correctly, but, um, he's made, I mean, he makes some very bold statements on the Messiah, on the Christ, blah, blah, blah. You know, he doesn't act like it, but that's what he states. But, uh, I find it very mm. interesting. He seems to know a lot of different stuff. There's also this hell proofing, this notion. Can you talk a little bit about hell proofing? Uh, not much because it's, it's just a phrase I heard towards the end of writing this book and I'm not there in Edmonton. I didn't get very much from the horse's mouth, so to speak, but, um, it seems to have more than one meaning also because there are, I have to say, rumors, or I think they're more than rumors. There's testimonies, allegations that John DeRuta is uh, doing something called wilderness training, which is taking people out into the wilderness in order to, to learn hunting skills and other who knows what for the coming collapse of civilization. Um, so that could be a kind of hell-proofing in a, in a very sort of practical way. I think the more general meaning is, uh, and it's probably consistent actually with Deruta's teachings throughout his entire ministry, but it has to do with um, uh, putting people through extreme discomfort so that they will become immune to it. I mean, 
again, this is this is a quite a good example of something that intersects with beliefs that I had before I met John, and to some extent that I still have, which is that in order to grow as individuals, we do need to leave our comfort zones. We can't just stay safe and complacent. We do need to test ourselves and stretch ourselves and so on. And, you know, my marriage has been a bit of a hell-proofing experience, to be honest. You know, I've been triggered and had to suffer and feel powerless and impotent and useless and all, all kinds of things. Most people who have been in a, you know, a, a long marriage will know what I'm talking about. It does, it does stretch us. No and it uh, <laughs> it does allow us to develop patience and compassion and serenity and and you know virtues through through the process of of suffering not not right. as a direct result of it but it's inseparable from the discomfort right so 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 all well and good but John's thing does seem to take it over the line which is almost like a christian thing of ascetics like the more you suffer the more you'll be doing penance the more you will be showing your loyalty to truth um and the more you will be um i mean you could say killing the part of you that uh that makes you suffer but also that um is unclean like it's a sort of purging thing that that if, if if he can um, persuade people to sub- submit to all kinds of indignities, um, humiliations, uh, discomforts, because he says so, then they're going to be forced to let go of the parts in themselves that do have wants and needs, which are considered a no-no in John Deruta's philosophy, you know, that, that do does have self-interest, that those parts are just going to get burned away in the fire of what they believe is truth. But I, I would say it's probably more like um, more like a military kind of thing of being indoctrinated through um, a kind of abuse, really subtle abuse. I mean, and, and that's kind of the, the, the dynamic that takes place between Deruder and his followers, right? There's a kind of subtle abusiveness that it's traced back. You traced it back from the beginning where he kind of laid guilt trips on people. Yeah. Stuff like that. It seems like that there, that that type of dynamic is taking place even to till today. You write about the accountability committee, where you know people are going to be put to account, but it's going to be done by a star chamber, and nobody's going to know what's going on. It seems, uh, you know, on the top topically, it do, it seems benign, but you know, you don't want to you don't want to fall under the. Well, it's very un- it's unclear what the accountability committee is actually in terms of what and what it means because I think uh, it's supposed to be a committee that holds John accountable in a certain sense, as in where I think it came about when the Benita von Sass affidavits came out and. Um, you know, you read excerpts from that, so right. she claimed. I mean, she claimed all kinds of things that were very, obviously, very uh, damning about John Deruta, including that he he claimed to be Christ battling Satan, and that in order to do battle with Satan internally, he had to go against his own teachings and commit all you know, devious sexuality and all kinds of sinful right. behavior, a very left-hand path sort of stuff, right? right? Sabbatean, uh, it's like uh, what yeah, Sabbatean, Levy, or what are those guys? I can't remember the names or two. Frank yeah, and Sab- Levy, yeah. Sabbatai Zavi, yeah. Yeah, it is. It's absolutely, and it's coming more to light that this kind of philosophy and how it does seem to be underlying our culture in many ways, or the power structures um, 
but anyway, back to the account, accountability committee, uh, I think the idea was that they, it came about there to address people's concerns about what John was doing and what was coming to light. So in a certain sense, like uh, it was a way, it was supposed to be a way for John to mediate with his followers through this committee. I, if you had issue with what John was doing, you could go to the committee and and say, I don't understand what John's doing and I'm feeling distrust and I'm feeling doubt. And then they would, they would, you know, pass on John's explanations or whatever, what have you. So you could see how, how clever that could be for a cult because it seems to be providing a service for people who are wrestling with doubts and all the rest of it. But it's also a way to keep tabs on them to find, you know, find out who is having doubt and to bring them back into the fold. Right. Good point. Um, yeah, I mean, did you ever, do you know there, did you ever hear of anything of them keeping folders on followers, kind of like Scientology, where they keep tabs on people? I haven't heard anything about that. It wouldn't surprise me at all. Because it seemed like, like, uh, what was her name? Von Sauss, Benita Von Sauss seemed to be on top of things before she was kind of forced out. I, I wouldn't be surprised if they kind of knew where the followers were or knew where he was making his money. Yeah, I think, I mean... Unfortunately, that wasn't something I could get into because there was no way to, there's nobody to ask, and Benita von Sass wasn't talking to me. Um, but I do get the sense with Oasis, as with most things, that um, you can you can somewhat extrapolate uh, what's going on behind the scenes by what what you can see. So. Several people have said that the people in the inner circle, the people who've been with John the longest, who are supposedly the closest to him, uh, are the most closed-minded, the most rigid, the most uh, intolerant, the most uh, controlling people in the group. Um, and uh, and certainly there's a lot of evidence that that's the way the organization works. It, it, it works like any other corporation in this kind of ruthless you could say psychopathic, because that's you know they've made the correlation between corporations and psychopaths. Right. Um, you know, pure self-interest. I mean, it is an. I think that the Oasis is incorporated in some. I mean, it is a business, right? I mean, it's a, a it's a corporation. It's absolutely. a corporation, so it's there and it's a money maker. I think he charges ten dollars for every lecture, gets three hundred people a lecture. That's three thousand dollars a lecture. I think he does it twice a day, right? Guy's making six thousand a pop, flies yeah. around first class. Yeah. He has a monster truck. He has all of the elements of uh, wealth, a million-dollar house, I think, if I remember everything. So um, yeah. it's not hurting. No, and so what I was getting at was that it, it wouldn't surprise me if there was if, if Oasis was functioning not only as a corporation but also as a kind of information-gathering agency or much like an intelligence agency operates just within its own sphere i mean um which is what we would expect from from a cult right i mean that's scientology that's osho right i mean all that stuff until they had intelligence arms and stuff like that so it wouldn't surprise me at all yeah i mean one doesn't want to speculate too much and i didn't in the book but on the other hand, one doesn't want to continue being naive about it. And <clears throat> the well, more I've uncovered about John, you know, the more it becomes possible. Right. And you ask, I mean, the book is lots of questions are taking place, lots of questions to try to get answers. So I, that was one of the elements of the book that I appreciated was you really were trying to 
do some analysis, try to figure out, you know, what was going on, what what Deruder's intentions were, his character. I mean, you lay it out very well. It's really a well done book. So I highly recommend the book.